Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Thursday, December this 23rd, 2021. The show will be rebroadcast on Monday, December the 27th, 2021, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 88th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. Tonight's show features our special guest, Mike Whitney, investigative journalist with an exceptionally high geopolitical acumen. We start the show off tonight in celebration of the Christmas and holiday season with some words I put together in pursuit of peace in the world. Our analysis of U.S. foreign policy should be seen on the larger historical and contemporary template in which it is enmeshed. Our policies do not just get generated from one government to another, but are connected and emanate from a power structure that is the product of great wealth accumulation and the power that comes with that. On previous shows, we have detailed the history of colonization of the New World led by Spain and Portugal and then supplanted by France and the UK that later gave rise and by proclamation of the 1823 Monroe Doctrine of the United States of America, declaring essentially that Latin America was our imperial backyard. It was in this backyard that we have shown that investment profiteering has continued to centralize the wealth in fewer and fewer hands. Following World War II, the United States emerged as a dominant capitalist nation, not just of the New World, but the whole world, as other allied nations and former colonial powers, England, France, Germany, and the rest of Western Europe, as well as Russia, prioritized their focus on rebuilding their economies post-World War II. NATO was formed, led by a core of former colonial Western powers, i.e. the United States, the UK, and France, who formed what Malcolm X described as, quote, an international power structure, end quote. They continue to exert their colonial economic dominance over their former colonies, but did so under a new arrangement, if you will, called neocolonialism. It is from this world dominance that the wealth accumulation that was generated through colonialism continued to disproportionately accumulate in the hands of a few. Without the overt forms of subjugation such as slavery through which colonialism exploited the work of others, new ones were created. The CIA led the internal penetration of civil societies throughout the world, partnering later in the 1960s with the U.S. State Department entities such as the United States Agency for International Development, 
Many good-intentioned Americans joined these efforts, not realizing the overarching goal was not to bring democracy to others, but to make these economies fertile for Western investment capital, which we euphemistically called making the world safe for democracy. Later, private government entities such as the National Endowment for Democracy, which would partner with NGOs to continue penetrating and generating this neo-colonialist dependency upon Western investment capital. The result of all this were countries whose leaders we would replace through coups or by undermining the sovereignty of their civil societies to ensure that the investment climate remained beneficial to what was best for multinational investment capital, rather than what was best for the majority populations of those countries. The result is the concentration of wealth continued to increase and at an inverse relationship, poverty and extreme poverty rates throughout the world and even in our own country continue to experience unacceptable high levels of prominence. Oxfam is a global nonprofit organization that works to end injustice of poverty. They described in their January 2020 Time to Care report the degree of wealth inequality in the world today and how it's partly driven by the burden placed on women in the form of unpaid and underpaid care work. They transparently share their methodology and reveal that women and girls put in 12.5 billion hours of unpaid work every day and that the sum of this woman's unpaid care work has a monetary value of $10.8 trillion annually. What has that helped to maintain? The very wealth inequality we have alluded to, in which Oxfam documents that the richest 1% in the world have more than double the wealth of 6.9 billion people of the world, and that among that 1% are the world's 2,153 billionaires, who in 2019 had more wealth than 4.6 billion people. Based on their research, Oxfam estimates that if the world's two richest men sat on their wealth piled in $100 bills, they'd be in outer space. Returning to U.S. foreign policy, it is that foreign policy that has established a consistent pattern of attacking any country that seeks a different path to prosperity than the one we demand they follow. If you take another path that cuts out Uncle Sam, you will be sanctioned. Whether it is Cuba or Venezuela or the 40% of the world population that is under U.S. international power structure-led sanctions, these sanctions are not primarily predicated on humanitarian grounds, as we are led to believe, but rather on the simple fact that they are not falling into line with the political economic dictates of the international power structure. Tonight's show and the demonization of Russia in general should be seen in the context that Russia opposed U.S. foreign policy in Iraq in 2003, opposed the illegal overthrow of the Libyan government in 2011, and militarily supported Syria, and to this day called out the United States and opposed the U.S. illegal interference and occupation of Syria, and called out the United States for its illegal coup in the Ukraine in 2014, and Russia's annexing per the popular will of, the, of its people, Crimea. And as Gilbert Doctorow wrote in his recent December 19, 2021 piece, A Surprise Russian Ultimatum, New Draft Treaties to Roll Back NATO, he wrote, It's public demand in 2007 by Vladimir Putin, in which he, quote, set out in detail Russia's rejection of the United States-led unipolar world as a source of international tensions, recourse to military solutions, and arms race and nuclear proliferation. 
U.S. hegemony was undemocratic and unworkable, Putin said. In other words, the singular hegemony of the United States running the world was being called out by Putin, as well as a demand for respecting the sovereignty of all nations in a new multipolar world that he envisioned. As a result, U.S. foreign policy and its criminally bloated defense budget, which is the only bipartisan agreement that our dysfunctional government really has, has its sights on Russia. We suggest that seeing the conflict between the United States and Russia in the Ukraine through this lens will bring you closer to the truth of the matter. Enjoy. Hey, welcome. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby Austin. This is Bringing Light into Darkness Monday News and Analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and today is December 23rd, 2021. It's a Thursday, and our show is being taped to be played on Monday, December the 27th, 2021. Last week, we visited quite a bit about the issues around the demonization of Russia, and we tried to present some of the Russian perspective regarding national security interests and, and other things with our guest, Dr. Gibbs, last week. Tonight is the end of the year, and I wanted to highlight the theme of this show, Bringing Light into Darkness which is committed to in defense and in promotion of humanity and to call out all that is wrong or in contradiction to that theme or otherwise compromises our common human potential or our common human dignity and humanity to live and let live. The biggest threat to democracy and to humanity is the disinformation that misleads compassionate people to believe untruths that lead to war and conflict. It appears that we are on a path to promote more war and conflict in the Russia-Ukraine theater and that the American public is getting brainwashed to accept this outcome as the fault of Putin and Russia. But the proof of our brainwashed dislike for Putin and Russia lie most clearly in the double standard of evidentiary proof or its absence of human rights claims when we compare the foreign policy and domestic repression outcomes of the United States versus those of Russia. Who has Russia attacked or invaded without cause since the turn of the century? They were asked by the elected government of Syria as an ally to help them repel a Muslim extremist terrorist-led insurgency led not by Syrians but by foreign extremist fighters. Meanwhile, our Secretary of State John Kerry in the Senate testimony along with the Obama administration lied to us on a number of U.S. Syrian issues that almost led us to war. Lies by Secretary of State John Kerry that we have fully documented on other shows including the certainty that Assad gassed his own people in 2013. We pointed out the absence of evidence that Assad gassed his own people in 2013. In a number of indications, it was members of our terrorist Al-Qaeda-linked allies that were responsible. In fact, subsequently, we were vindicated in calling out the Kerry lie that with absolute certainty it was Assad who gassed his own people on August 21, 2013 by RootClaim.org, who on October 1, 2020, published with almost complete certainty it was not Assad. With 96% certainty, quote, opposition forces in Syria, the Luai al-Islam terrorist group, carried out the chemical attack, end quote. Further, they claimed a 3.5% probability that it was, quote, the Syrian army that carried out the chemical attack, end quote. 
Meanwhile, it is our government, not Russia's, that according to international law is illegally occupying eastern Syria and by doing so illegally occupying their oil fields and sanctioning them for unproven gas attack claims and by doing so keeping the Syrians from rebuilding from the terrorist-led opposition that the United States has been enabling for the past 10 years. Cannot we see the inhumanity of our policy in Syria since 2011? Russia is accused of the Skirpal poisoning and a number of other quote-unquote accusations, all without any incontrovertible evidence for their guilt being provided to the U.S. public. Meanwhile, the U.S.-led sanctions and the 2003 U.S.-led invasion of Iraq killed more than a million Iraqis. So who is the real aggressor? The United States overthrows the elected government of the Ukraine in an illegal coup which directly leads to the return of a European government for the first time since the end of World War II of a government infested with neo-Nazis, which we will speak to shortly in more depth. Meanwhile, as documented in last week's show, the Crimea overwhelmingly supported the coup-out President Yanukovych, as well as the separatist movement that emerged in the east and the south of Ukraine, it was not because of Russia that a separatist movement emerged in the Donetsk and Lugansk area of Ukraine, but because of the president that some 80% of that population voted for was overthrown in an illegal coup. Yet Russia, without incontrovertible evidence, is falsely accused and convicted, not based on evidence, but on because I said so false evidentiary basis of being the driving force behind the separatist resistance in Donetsk and Lugansk. Clearly then, isn't it more logical that the United States and its U.S.-promoted coup, not Russia, instigated all this unrest? Again, arguably, it was not Russia that instigated the unrest, but the coup itself. But we get none of that consideration in our mainstream media news coverage of the Ukraine crisis. Yet in our brainwashed country, Russia is the aggressor, and that remains the dominant narrative and the false understanding. The U.S., not Russia, led the illegal NATO-driven overthrow of the Libyan government in 2011 in a country that had the highest living standards as measured by the reliable Human Development Index in all of Africa. As a result, it has caused great demise of quality of life for the majority population amidst massive casualties and instability over the last 10 years. Think about it. In 2020, the African continent had an infant mortality rate of 45.1 per thousand live births. In 2010, just before the illegal invasion, the infant mortality rate in Libya was just 6.1 per thousand live births, nine times less. Meanwhile, it suggested that it was because of Libya's huge oil reserves that was a result of their high standard of life and their low infant mortality rates. What was absent from that shallow analysis was how much they invested into health care. But Nigeria is another country with huge oil reserves, second only to Libya, and they had an infant mortality rate in 2021 of 58.23 per 1,000 live births. Almost 10 times the rate of 2010 Libya. What does that mean? In Libya, since our illegal NATO invasion, infant mortality has jumped from the 2010 rate of 6.1 per thousand to 9.9 infant mortality deaths per 1,000 live births some 10 years later, which is a 62% increase. I did some math the other night and translated all of this into numbers that we can understand and digest. Translated, the sharp rise of the infant mortality rate in Libya from 6.1 to 9.9 .9 in just 10 years. Following our illegal invasion, that's 3.8 more deaths per 1,000 live births. 
in the eight years between our invasion in 2011 and 2019. So the birth rate per 1,000 people in Libya in 2019 was 18.5. With a population of just over 6.7 million, that generates an increase of some 14,352 infant deaths in just one year based on the increased infant mortality rates. Since the invasion. That would not have occurred if the U.S. had not illegally overthrown the Libyan government. Meanwhile, Nigeria has a population in 2020 of some 206 million people. They had an infant mortality rate of 57.86 per 1,000 live births. By applying the same mathematical calculations, you can discover that Nigeria had in 2020, if they had the same infant mortality rate that Gaddafi's Libyan government had back in 2010, in a single year, mind you, it would have saved 398,221 lives. Multiply that times the grief of a single mother who loses a child before their child reaches the age of one. This is a product of this gross wealth inequality that our neoliberal economic system is so largely responsible for and by definition is preventable. Bear with me here. I wanted to turn to the neo-fascists playing a central role in this Ukrainian coup in 2014. and They were rewarded with a large number of cabinet positions in the post-coup government. These fascists are defined as such due to their beliefs as reflected in their own quotes and associations with the ultra-right-wing groups such as the Svoboda Party, which was formerly the neo-Nazi Social National Party of Ukraine and the Right Sector Party. This is not a fringe claim. Even mainstream pundits such as Eugene Robinson in the Washington Post in an op-ed back in March of 2014 lamented, quote, how several top ministries and government posts were being headed by individuals with ties to the far-right and neo-Nazi groups, end quote. And as Justin Raimundo wrote the same year in 2014 in an antiwar.com piece entitled A Monster Reawakens, The Rise of Ukrainian Fascism, quote, for the first time since 1933, the followers of a movement that valorizes Adolf Hitler and preaches anti-Semitism has entered a European government, end quote. To be clear, this is the first European reemergence of neo-Nazi riddled government since World War II, and under the democratic administration of President Obama, we, the United States, put them in power. The same democratic president, I might add, led the illegal overthrow of the Libyan government some three years earlier in 2011 that brought a return to black slavery to Libya, documented by CNN and others, and turned that country, which before the U.S. led NATO illegal overthrow, had the highest living standards in the whole continent of Africa, turned it into a killing field for the last 10 years. I share this not to be anti-President Obama, but to be anti-wrong. Everyone must admit how wrong that was or their humanity has been brainwashed from their soul. Yet virtually zero coverage of these two foreign policy outcomes by our mainstream media have occurred. Have you heard coverage of either humanitarian crimes of returning fascism to the government of Ukraine or wiping out the country with the highest human development index on the African continent and returning slavery to Libya? Have you heard either story on NPR or the rest of our mainstream press? No, it begs the question that should be resonating throughout our democracy. What else does our mainstream press keep us ignorant of? Eight neo-fascist cabinet members, per Justin's article, were assigned government positions in the U.S.-imposed 2014 post-coup government. In addition, Oli Tayakobak, the Svoboda leader and top official of the Ukrainian parliament, is in, in a position of great power. In addition to this neo-Nazi, Andrei Parabi, 
co-founder of the neo-Nazi Social National Party of the Ukraine, later named Svoboda, along with Ali Tanivak, were both followers of the Ukrainian Nazi Stepan Bandera, who collaborated in the World War II mass murder of Jews and Poles, were just two of these neo-Nazi government leaders. Svoboda activists who had already held seats in the parliament hold no less than eight top cabinet positions. Just very quickly, Ihor Tenyuk, interim defense minister and a member of the Svoboda Political Council, formerly the commander of the Ukraine's Navy in 2008 during Russia's war with Georgia. He ordered Ukrainian ships to block the entrance of the Russian Navy to the Bay of Sevastopol. Andrei Perobi. National Security Council chief. This is the guy that's responsible for what's going on in the East, the repression up there. He co-founded Svoboda back when it was the Social National Party. Dimitro Yarish, deputy head of the National Security Council. That's the police. Dimitro Yarish, as well, was the founder, leader of the right sector. during a militant neo-Nazi paramilitary group that took charge of security in the Maiden. Where under his watch, a number of people were killed by snipers. Oli Magnitsky, he's a Savoboda Party of Parliament member, is the prosecutor general. Alexandre Sich. S-Y-C-H, Svoboda, parliamentarian and the party's chief ideologist, is deputy prime minister for economic affairs. Serhi Kivit, a leading member of Svoboda, was assigned to head up the education ministry. And Andriy Moknik, the new minister of ecology, has been Svoboda's envoy to other European fascist parties. Last year, again, this is referring back to the 2014 period, he met with representatives of Italy's violent neo-fascist gang Forza Nuovo. And finally, Ihor Sheveka, agro-oligarch and a member of the Svoboda Party, has been appointed Minister of, of Agriculture. One of the richest men in the country, his massive investments in agriculture would seem to indicate a slight conflict of interest. If we fast forward, last month, November 3rd, 2021, just as they're ramping up an offensive in the Ukraine, who do they appoint to lead the charge? A neo-Nazi. By order of the Lieutenant General Valery Zelizhny, the former leader of the Ukrainian fascist paramilitary group Right Sector, referring to the aforementioned Dmitry Yarish, the former neo-Nazi paramilitary leader, has been appointed to the role of advisor to the commander-in-chief of the country's armed forces. That was reported just last month. According to an indictment back some years ago, 2018, of several California men involved in the Charlottesville violence, Ukraine's neo-Nazi Azov Battalion is believed to have participated in the training and radicalizing of U.S. white supremacists. This is kind of like the chickens coming home to roost. Sadly, paralleling the Osama bin Laden story, a former U.S. asset turning into a mass murder of that claimed 3,000 U.S. lives on 9-11. Four members of the Rise Above movement, uh, the RAM, described by the FBI as a white supremacy extremist group, were indicted for conspiracy to riot over the August 2017 violence in Charlottesville, Virginia, among other things. In the affidavit, this is written by an FBI special agent, Scott Beerworth, indicated that a 28-year-old Robert Rundo is said to have traveled to Germany, Italy, and Ukraine in the spring of 2018. Rundo allegedly met with Olina Semenyaka, an official of the National Corps, a political wing of that neo-Nazi Azov battalion. In November 28th of 21, 
the celebrated Stanford scholar and ex-envoy to Russia, former U.S. ambassador from 2012 to 2014, that would be Michael McFaul, was having trouble with evidence that the Ukrainian government sympathizes with paramilitary groups that espouse neo-Nazi ideologies. Michael McFaul expresses the doubts about Kiev's support for ultra-nationalists and neo-Nazi elements in Ukraine. He was responding to journalist Glenn Greenwald's assertion that the Ukrainian government has clear, systematic, and deeply ominous ties to actual Nazi groups and neo-Nazi factions, end quote. These are the words of McFaul. Most countries have Nazi sympathizers, he artfully retorted. But the Ukrainian government, really? Any evidence to support that hypothesis? The prime minister is Jewish, end quote. It reminds me of proof that I'm not promoting racism and I'm not a racist because I have a black friend. Anyhow, McFaul is not just a well-educated Russia-phobe who blames everything on Russia. He is MSNBC's longtime analyst, the MSNBC's international affairs analyst. And this is just further evidence of the innate bias MSNBC has when it comes to U.S. foreign policy issues and Russia in general. But anyhow, returning to the post-coup repression, before doing that, I wanted to introduce our guest for tonight. I'm really excited, and we are really blessed during this holiday season to have Mike Whitney returning to Bringing Light into Darkness. Mike is an investigative journalist a geopolitical analyst that studies regularly what's going on throughout the world, not just within our immediate borders. Mike, welcome back to Bringing Light into Darkness. Hey, thank you for having me, Pedro. So let me share just really quickly. There is an enormous... That was a a great roundup, by the way. Oh, well, thanks. I just want to set the stage for our discussion tonight, and I think all of that is a good context, I hope. But also, the OSCE, that that acronym stands for the Organization for Security and Cooperation for Europe. Anyhow, the the OSCE remains silent despite uncovering of Ukraine's mass killings in Donbass. The South Front was reporting. This is an article, Mike. I just wanted to highlight just a couple of things from it and then have you start your analysis. But it's written by Paul Antonopoulos, who I read before, and he's an independent geopolitical analyst and a very good writer, in my experience of reading a number of his pieces over the years. In his piece, he indicates that over a thousand, and this piece was written just December 6th of 2021, over a thousand victims of Ukraine's military aggression against Donbass were discovered in unnamed graves. And since 2014, about 130 burial places of missing persons have been discovered. Also, more than 3,000 claims have already been sent to the International Criminal Court in The Hague. Anna Soroka, the chair of the Interdepartmental Working Group on the Search for Burials in the Lugansk province there, said, quote, The enemy went so far as to prevent the burial of the dead. Cemeteries were mined. People could not send their loved ones on their final journey, end quote. Civilians from the graves, if the places of these graves are put on a map, they fall into settlements that were under the control of these so-called Ukrainian volunteer battalions, such as the Azkov that we mentioned earlier. We have information where they were based. It is there that these bodies with traces of torture and execution were located. So essentially, these were assassinations mainly and 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 i want to point this out that the overwhelming majority of them 
were civilian non-war combatants, it was possible to uh, identify that the majority of victims were buried in common areas by the Ukrainian forces were non-combatant civilians and other article related to the subject indicated. But before we go on, we need to take a break for the cause. This is Bringing Light into Darkness. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. We will return with our discussion of the unreported Ukrainian repression in eastern Ukraine and the analysis of our very special guest, Mike Whitney, right after this. 